the week in doubt, religious news stories from a skeptical perspective, random musings on everything from pop culture to politics, and even audio documentaries on weird and interesting topics like Krampus and the history of the holidays. The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, the host of The Week in Doubt, and I guess uh, we'll call this one episode 323. Before we begin, I'd like to give a shout out to Michael Gadala for liking The Week in Doubt Facebook page. And uh, you guys might have noticed I took a stab at creating a new intro there, basically took the old bumper music and did a little uh, voiceover over it. Uh, let me know what you guys think. Do you like it? Should I scrap it? Either way is cool with me. Uh, I just thought I'd, you know, try to do something a little more professional there at the beginning. But I think that is a pretty good summary of what the show's all about. I know sometimes the show can seem a bit unpredictable or all over the place. One week you'll have a kind of standard episode where I go over some news stories. Then you'll have these little uh, brief impromptu episodes or you'll have these mini audio documentaries on the occult or the stuff out of uh, left field. So I thought an intro like that might also help to kind of unify or crystallize my vision of the podcast and what it's all about and kind of let people know right up front what they can expect, you know? I've also been thinking about revamping the podcast art. I've pretty much been using the same thumbnail for about five or six years now, or however long I've been doing this. And as I always mention on the show ad nauseum, yeah, you know, I'm currently working construction, but my degree is actually in graphic design. And I still do a little bit of graphic design stuff here and there, a little bit of freelance work, and uh, but mostly creating thumbnails for the podcast and stuff like that. And I always felt like the logo could have been better. I kind of played it safe. I like the color scheme, the purple, the black, and the white, but I'd like a logo that's kind of slicker or more dynamic, maybe plays with uh, perspective or something like that. So I'll, I'll probably work on that at some point, or if anyone in the audience wants to help out with either an audio intro or a logo, you know, uh, let me know. Um, I don't know how much I can afford the pay or if anyone wants to do it for free for like a plug or something like that or an ongoing plug. Uh, we'll see what happens. So the last Patreon bonus show was pretty interesting. Things got pretty uh, kind of intimate or personal. So what did I talk about? Oh yeah, so there was this idea for a series I've had for a while now, and I decided to try it out on the last bonus episode. Uh, it's something I kind of unimaginably uh, call drug stories, where, you know, where in each installment, I just talk about a different substance I have experience with and kind of, uh, you know, just tell some personal stories or whatever. And so the first episode was just all about marijuana. So I go way back into my early teens and uh, talk about the circumstances, kind of uh, my tumultuous home life, etc. You know, the things that led me to start exper uh, experimenting with drugs. And 
that led into a bunch of really kind of uh, sensitive topics. I ended up talking about uh, some of my early sexual experiences, um, this weird kind of hang-up I developed from an early age about being uncircumcised, and that, how that led me to undergo an adult circumcision when, when I was about 18 or 19, and how I woke up the next morning and popped a stitch. Uh, I talked about uh, how I overdosed and almost died uh, on Ativan when I was uh, in my early teens. So some pretty wild stuff. And every time I mention my adult circumcision, uh, and I'll put adult in quotation marks because once again, I was only like somewhere in between 18 and 20. Um, and it's something I do kind of regret. And I'm by no means, quote unquote, pro-circumcision, but I can't even mention that story on the show without people crawling out of the woodwork to berate me and tell me what a weirdo I am for volunteering to undergo, you know, such a procedure. And once again, you know, I may have technically been an adult, but, you know, I was somewhere between 18 and 20 uh, and when I was a kid uh, growing up, it was more common here in the States for guys to be circumcised than not. And I came from a kind of strict Roman Catholic background where people didn't really talk about sex or, you know, sexual anatomy or anything. So I pretty much thought I was a freak. So I had this, I didn't know why I had extra skin on the end of my dick. And so even after I learned that it was a natural thing, by that time it was too late. I had it drilled into me that I was the weirdo for not being circumcised. And, uh, and I, I knew that girls seemed to prefer circumcised guys to uncircumcised guys. And being a young kind of sensitive person, I uh, I decided kind of foolishly, I think, in retrospect, to have it done. And I think in a way it's kind of symptomatic of a larger problem I suffer from where, you know, I think ever since I was really young, I've had issues with obsessive worrying with uh, depression and anxiety. And I, and I think I talked about this on the bonus episode, for how since from an early age, I've had this tendency to find something like a fault I see in myself or a problem in my life and to lock on it like, or my mind will lock on it like grim death, like a dog on a bone, and I'll just drive myself crazy worrying about it. And then, you know, I'll have this, I'll develop this naive idea that if I can just cull out that one problem area of my life, you know, everything will be sunshine and roses. And as I've learned the hard way, no, that doesn't work. You have to address the more deep-seated problem, your self-esteem issues, your, you know, penchant for chronically, you know, obsessively worrying about things. And so the older I get, the more I kind of realize those patterns and the kind of more healthy or mature of, a pro of an approach I develop to handling problems in my life. 
But that point, you know, I, I was very sensitive, had self-esteem issues, and also I think just had this uh, this ingrained, perhaps inherent tendency to, you know, obsessively worry about certain things. And so I thought if I could just cull out this one problem in this sense, you know, cut off that one part of my anatomy that uh, things would just be so much easier, that I'd have a more positive self-image. And as it turns out, no. You know, I think sometimes having procedures like that done, like plastic surgery and stuff, it can temporarily make you feel better about yourself. But then eventually the old problems, the old patterns reemerge again. And man, now I'm getting really personal again. Uh, but I, I guess I should mention this so I don't seem like a hypocrite, like I'm trying to gloss over it. But I also had rhinoplasty. Um, and now I'm thinking of that old, uh, like there was a stand-up comedian who used to, was it, uh, was that Jerry Seinfeld who had the joke about, uh, why do they call it rhinoplasty? The person priori feels bad enough about having a big nose and you're comparing them to like a rhinoceros or whatever. But, uh, yeah, horrible, like allergy and sinus problems run in my family and even my older sister, who's always had a nice little nose, had deviated septum surgery. And I had a bad deviated septum. Like they said it was S-shaped uh, and I had trouble breathing on both sides. And uh, th there's these structures in your nose called turbinates. And mine were really just swollen and inflamed from years and years of bad sinus problems. So... um. The doctors thought it was the right thing to do, and I decided, yeah, I'll have it, you know, I want to have it done as well. And so I decided to have deviated septum surgery, and I decided, well, I'm at it, because when I was younger, I had this kind of uh, really kind of strong or prominent Italian nose, and I used to catch a decent amount of shit for it growing up, especially when I was like a young teenager. Cause you know, you're in that awkward phase where you're kind of like a puppy whose uh, paws are too big for them. You haven't grown into them yet. And that's what my nose was kind of like. And um, I remember when I was younger, there were like some of my early girlfriends would tell me that one of the things that drew them to me was actually my, uh, shall we say, prominent nose. And other people took it as an excuse to try, you know, make fun of me or whatever. And um, it's not like I was constantly made fun of for it, but being a sensitive person, I kind of collected those slights and held on to them and became very kind of self-conscious, you know. And... Um, I'd go through these through these different periods where sometimes I'd see like a picture of myself from the wrong angle or someone would say something, you know, kind of mean-spirited or maybe they didn't mean it as mean-spirited, but, you know, I took it more to heart than I should have. You know, someone would say something and I would start to kind of worry or fixate about my nose. Then other times I would kind of learn to accept it and then eventually something would cause me to feel sensitive about it again. Then finally, I think I was in like my late 20s and I was feeling particularly sensitive about it. And I think I was at a party 
and some like shitty kind of like biker dude who I was kind of friends with, kind of not. Uh, for some reason, he decided to kind of throw me under the bus in front of, you know, a whole table full of people and said, you know, start going in about my nose. Why is it so big? Asking me if I was Jewish, etc. Um, and I won't say that was like the... F- I don't know, because I don't want to give someone else that much power to say one person was the deciding factor. But I'd be lying if I were to say that wasn't to some degree like the straw that finally broke the camel's back. I had already been thinking about having rhinoplasty and uh, was already feeling sensitive about it. And then that happened. And um, so, yeah, I ended up having, I think they call it septorhinoplasty. It's basically two procedures at once. I had an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Perform- and no, it's not that my nose was so big I needed two doctors. But I, there was an ear, nose, and throat doctor who performed the deviated septum surgery, who kind of remodeled those turbinates and thinned them out and took care of the the years of inflammation that, you know, tried to reverse the years of inf- inflammation and who straightened out my, you know, my septum. And then a plastic surgeon who basically um, kind of shaved down or corrected, corrected in quotes, uh, that kind of Roman or aquiline humper I had on my nose. And I hate saying corrected because I think that makes it sound like it's something that shouldn't be there. And I think it's, uh, for the most part, you know, it's an, it's, it's an ethnic trait and it's kind of shitty to say that an ethnic trait shouldn't be there. Obviously I had inherited that hump on my nose from, uh, ancestors who must've, you know, managed to, uh, reproduce with, with such a trait, a characteristic, you know? So in the end, it didn't really, uh, it prevent them from, uh, being successful in procreating or whatever and passing their genes down. Um, and, uh, so I have a certain amount of guilt for that too. And one thing I'll say, you know, if anyone listening wrestles with similar problems, both the adult circumcision and the nose thing, I think they're kind of double-edged, double-edged swords where there's pros and cons to having such procedures done. Um, and it's not like there are these magical operations that are going to leave you feeling so much better about yourself and um, just you know, magically turn your life around. And I remember I had a very good plastic surgeon who even tried to reinforce that and clarify it, that this isn't going to solve everything that's wrong with your life. You have to be realistic about it. It may help you, may help your self-esteem to some degree. It may help you like what you see in the mirror a little more, maybe, but it's not going to magically solve all your life's problems, you know? Um, and so I found that just my personal experience, there are definitely pros and cons that it it is a double-edged sword. There's sometimes where I do feel kind of relieved that I don't have to worry about which side of my nose people see in conversation. If it's the side that looks bigger to me or wonder if people are thinking, wow, look at the size of this kid's nose or something, you know, um, 
And, uh, you know, I can look at a, uh, a, a side shot of myself, a profile picture, and think that my face looks more balanced or whatever. And then there's times when um, I feel a little bit of guilt that I had an operation to aesthetically change a natural and inherited ethnic trait or whatever, you know, uh, almost in some weird way, like I betrayed my family or my ancestors. Um, and also I find that, you, you know, plastic sur surgery isn't perfect. The medium they're working with isn't clay or computer imagery. They're canvas or their medium is literally flesh, bone, and cartilage. And there's only so much they can do with what they have to work with. And so I think it's fairly common for people to, you know, maybe you think you're going to end up with this perfect Brad Pitt nose, but you just end up with a compromise. You end up with a somewhat altered version of your original nose or whatever feature it is. And um, I noticed that Maybe in some ways, my nose maybe looks better from certain angles. Maybe in some ways, maybe it, you could argue it looked better before. And uh, even the thing with like an adult circumcision, on the one hand, you know, you might say, oh, now I don't have to feel self-conscious about not being, you know, about being uncircumcised, which at, at my age seems ridiculous now that you would even worry about that. But I can, I can have pity on my younger self and realize how he felt self-conscious about it. But then you also have to worry about things. Well, is it, did it rob me of some degree of sensitivity? Um, you know, I basically cut up and had, had cut up and scarred, you know, this part of my anatomy that probably didn't need it, you know? Um, so it, it's those things. Yeah. There's pros and cons and, and it's a double-edged sword and there are think, things you should think really long and hard about before having done. And maybe you should even try to dig down and work on those underlying self-esteem issues and for uh, first or work on, you know, the obsessive worrying or, you know, the, the, things like that. And I think things like obsessive worrying, you know, part of it, it's kind of like things like depression and anxiety, I think the experts still don't know how much of it is cognitive and how much of it is, is chemical. Um, and it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing, you know, because they do think that there is a chemical correlation or component to obsessive worrying. And um, I've never had full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder or been diagnosed with it, but I had have therapists tell me that I seem to have the kind of cognitive equivalent of it where I'm not flicking light switches or things like that before I leave the house, you know, but I do tend to worry too much about things in this kind of cyclical, unhealthy manner. And they've discovered that things like Prozac, which I'm on, which I take to some degree for depression, but predominantly for my chronic migraine condition that Prozac uh, fluoxetine, the generic medical pharmacological name, has been proven to also help with obsessive worrying. And maybe I have that to thank to some degree for getting a handle on that stuff too. And part of it, like I said, might also just be maturity and um, 
you know, learning over time how to recognize those negative patterns. But yeah, I would say before you have any type of surgery like that done, um, yes, try to really have a, a heart to heart with yourself and, uh, or, you know, maybe a therapist and, and try to see if maybe there's some underlying issues you could work on that you might be able to resolve before you actually go through and have some kind of, you know, life-changing surgery like that. But I can't believe I almost spent the first 20 minutes of the show just talking about that personal stuff when it was just supposed to be a very brief recap of what went down on the last uh, bonus episode. Uh, but uh, I guess that's, uh, that's pretty, you know, par for the course with me. But if you guys are still listening, uh, you know, <laughs> let's move on. So... I recently started watching slash listening to uh, Real Time with Bill Maher again. And I remember back in the day, uh, I think even in the inaugural episode of this podcast, I actually played and reacted to a real time clip. Uh, back in the day, I think a lot of you guys used to like when I would uh, play clips from Real Time with Bill Maher. So I thought, you know, what the heck? Uh, let's kind of resurrect that old tradition. And to be honest, the reason why I stopped watching uh, Real Time with Bill Maher is basically the same reason why I stopped watching CNN and stopped listening to Anderson uh, Cooper's 360 podcast. It's that uh, when Trump won the presidential election, and, and mind you, you know, you guys who listen regularly know that I'm, I'm so kind of distrustful of politicians in general that I tend to just refer to myself as a left-leaning independent. I'm by no means um, a kind of party-line Democrat or whatever. Uh, but I do consider myself to be someone who has uh, rather progressive values, very pro-LGBTQ uh, rights, um, very much in favor of a strong separation of church and state, uh, in favor of drug legalization within reason. I'm even in favor of really lefty social programs like single-payer health care, uh, universal basic income, uh, as long as these things can be realistically paid for and maintained, you know, why not? Uh, I think it would make everyone's life better, you know? And I should add that, you know, the idea of government provided or paid for health care uh, wasn't always uh, such a specifically lefty thing, you know, that y you can trace these ideas back to, you know, Mitt Romney and Bob Dole. Uh, it, it just seems like the right is sliding more to the right. And now um, the idea of single-payer health care, you know, the right treats it like it's this really hippy-dippy, pie-in-the-sky type of thing. But I guess in a very roundabout way, what I'm trying to get at is, although I wasn't one of these people who was, uh, you know, kneeling in the streets, sobbing to the heavens because Trump got elected, I do find the man so distasteful and find him to be such a kind of absurd and despicable creature that I was very put off um, 
like many people, you know, I'm like, is this real? When he actually ended up uh, winning the election. And I pretty much said, I'm taking a break from politics. Uh, I don't want to be reminded 24-7 that this guy actually managed to get elected. So I ain't going to watch, you know, CNN for a while. And uh, that means I'm also not going to listen to Anderson Cooper's podcast. And what I liked about Bill Maher was, uh, you know, as a non-believer, I used to like the little bits he would do on religion, etc., and I knew that he was already antagonistic towards Trump and there was like a, a thing between the two of them. And I I just had, the, I felt like maybe some of the things I liked about Bill Maher, like his focus on religion, were going to take a back seat to a focus on Trump. And so for the same reason, I didn't feel like listening to someone constantly talking about Trump. I just wanted to like forget the fact that the guy was elected president. I basically, I stopped, I stopped consuming a lot of, um, political content. Uh, I, you know, I stopped watching real time for a while. Um, then for the first time in months and months, uh, I just watched an episode of real time with Bill Maher. And there was kind of a funny little segment he did on this little, uh, I guess feud for lack of a better word between vice president, Mike Pence and uh, South Bend, Indiana mayor slash presidential hopeful uh, Pete Buttigieg. Is that how you pronounce it? I know Kyle Kalinske calls him Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> and I don't think uh, um, Kyle Kalinske thinks all that highly of him because uh, I was just watching a, a secular talk segment yesterday where... Kyle was making the point that it seems like Booty Judge, Booty Jig, uh, Booty Jig is making, uh, it seems to be making this play where he wants to paint Bernie as being kind of the angry old man. And uh, Kyle Kalinsky, understandably, uh, isn't too happy about that. And uh, I have to say, I did watch. Bernie's uh, town hall on Fox News, and I actually thought he kicked ass. I kind of resented Bernie for kind of folding last time around, but I'm getting a little fired up again. I thought he really handled himself well during that uh, that town hall. Uh, but here's that real-time clip. Mike Pence and Mayor Pete had a big spat this week. I don't know if you heard about this. Mike, uh, Mayor Pete said, if you have a problem with me being a homosexual, take it up with my creator. And Mike Pence was like, oh, no, we're the only one that gets to use the God argument. <laughs> and Mayor Pete was like, well, if you're so Christian, <laughs> how come <laughs> you're a supporter of that lying, adulterous porn star fucker? <laughs> so... I summarized the few. Okay. So we thought this would be a perfect week to do something we do here a lot on the show. 25 things you don't know about me. It's really something from Us Magazine. Uh, we stole it from Us Magazine, but we do it better, so now we own it. Okay. 25 things about Mike Pence you don't know. I play the pilot in every airline safety video. <laughs> Karen and I waited until marriage to have eye contact. <laughs> the stick up my ass is made from repurposed driftwood. 
My wife teaches at an anti-gay school, but that doesn't make her anti-gay, although she is anti-gay. <laughs> I can, I can identify brands of white bread just by smelling them. <laughs> if I could change one thing in the Bible, I'd make Jesus wear a shirt. <laughs> I call bagels Jew donuts. I'm so homophobic, I eat bananas sideways. <laughs> Whenever I see a rainbow, I throw rocks at it and say, be gone, gay air. <laughs> and I won't even use the back door to my house. All right, so there it was, uh, the first real-time clip in quite a while. So now I'll move on to another story. This one is from uh, Patheos's The Friendly Atheist, and uh, this is by Hemant Mehta himself. It's entitled, A Bunch of Gullible Christians Claim Jesus Appeared in the uh, Notre Dame Fire. If you can't see him, don't worry, he doesn't exist. But people pointed to this outline as proof that Jesus was watching over the famed building. Okay, and so I'll include a picture in the YouTube version of the show. And so it does look roughly like a tall, robed figure. Uh... <laughs> And that's not me trying to lend credence to the idea that this is actually, uh, you know, an apparition of, of Christ or whatever. Um, once again, this is kind of atheism 101, you know, where Michael Shermer, where pattern seeking <laughs> animals, um, pareidolia, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we tend to see faces and wood grain doors and, uh, you know, images on burnt toast and the like. Um, it looks just as easily that it could be, uh, you know, like Dante or Virgil from an old lithograph or um, like maybe it could be the level one boss from Altered Beast. <laughs> it looks kind of like a robed figure holding a scythe or something. Um, but continues, Leslie Rowan from Alexandria in West Dunbartonshire, Scotland. Did I butcher that? Probably. Was reading about the tragic incident when she claims to have noticed in one of the pictures a figure in the billowing smoke. Leslie was quickly inundated with social media users who also believe they could see the outline of Jesus within the roaring flames. I feel like it will bring comfort to people in Paris and all over the world at this sad time. And here I might catch some flack. I might catch some hate. Uh, I'm someone who loves medieval history, uh, ancient history in general, world history. I'm someone who, even though, you know, I can be very critical of religion and Christianity specifically, I talk about my love for a lot of, you know, old Christian art and architecture and sacred music, etc. And uh, Notre Dame Cathedral is no exception. And I can remember I told uh, Crocoduck on Twitter, because uh, he sent me a tweet about it, and uh, 
I told him, yeah, it was, you know, really surreal. I was actually working at my sister's house. My brother and I were replacing a floor for her. And every once in a while, I'd go to get some flooring in the next room. And I'd walk in, you know, she, she had this big television on with the news. And I'm like, whoa, you know, it was kind of jarring. Uh, it kind of stopped me in my tracks when I first saw the, the imagery of uh, Notre Dame Cathedral engulfed in flames. And it looked very surreal, like something from a Bosch painting or something. Um, so I understand the cultural and historical loss. And, uh, you know, it, it is, it is a serious loss. And at the same time, there's part of me, when I hear the way some people talk about it, I'm like, Oh my God, it almost sounds like the media is injecting as much pathos into this story, if not more than you might hear about a terrorist attack or some tragedy that involved, you know, uh, the loss of scores or hundreds of innocent lives or something. Uh, it's like, I get it. Uh, it's Western media reporting on the loss of a huge part of Western culture. But I can remember being indig really indignant and feeling this sense of anger and frustration when ISIS was destroying these ancient Mesopotamian uh, pieces of art and monuments, etc., in the Middle East. And I don't remember the media talking with nearly the same amount of uh, emotion or loss then, you know what I mean? But yeah, yeah, I get it. Before you send your hate mail, I, <laughs> I understand uh, the, the, the sense of loss, and I feel it too. I just... Uh, you know, I just thought it was a little peculiar, uh, relatively speaking, uh, the level to which some of the media were taking it. And I think it was right before I sat down to record, I saw a tweet from uh, this woman, a member of the uh, Satanic Temple. I believe her name's Jex Blackmore. And actually, earlier in the day, in the day, I was watching her debate members of the uh, Westboro Baptist Church. Is that how? Am I uh, messing that up? Um, and she made some joke about how if you're a metal band and you're looking for an album cover, here it is, uh, the conflagration, you know, uh, Notre Dame Cathedral uh, engulfed in flames. I love the smell of roasted hunchback in the morning. Uh, let's see, uh, there was something, oh yeah, right before I sat down to record, I also heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but um, supposedly the research or the work or mapping that the makers or developers of the Assassin's Creed games did regarding Notre Dame, which I guess, Notre Dame Cathedral, which appears in one of the games, may actually aid in the, the renovation or rebuilding process. Don't know how much truth there is to that, but I, I thought that was interesting. Okay, so next, I don't know how much time I'll spend on this one, but it's kind of funny. I actually first learned about this while watching uh, an H3H3 clip that appeared in my uh, YouTube feed or the, you know, the suggested column on the, uh, the right. And it was about this Instagram account called uh, <laughs> Preachers and Sneakers. And the theme of, of it is uh, 
they basically show you pictures of real kind of uh, um, these big time Christian preachers uh, wearing sneakers. And then they, you know, they track down what brand sneakers they are and tell you how much they cost. And the cost of some of these sneakers is absolutely obscene. And there's a New York Times article, it's entitled, Let He Who Is Without Jesus Cast the First Stone. Should pastors wear $5,000 sneakers? There's been soul-searching recently over materialism in houses of worship. And it says, Carl Lentz, the pastor who baptized Justin Bieber in a professional basketball player's bathtub, appeared wearing a pair of Nike Air Fear of God sneakers that were selling online for about $500. Uh, so that's, you know, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Then John Gray, a pastor from South Carolina, was shown in blood red Air Yeezy uh, twos, the sneakers made in collaboration with Kanye West that were going for upward of 5000 And in another photo, Chad Veach, who preaches in Los Angeles, had a $1,900 Gucci bag and wore $795 pants. And speaking of Gucci, I remember one of the examples H3H3 showed. There was this kind of, you know, long, like uh, shaggy-haired, younger mega pastor or preacher, whatever ever you call them, up in front of, you know, this giant congregation. And he was wearing a pair of like super expensive Gucci slip-ons. I'm like, come on, man. I'm trying to think to myself, if I was going to play devil's advocate, if I wanted to be super charitable, what's the best thing I could possibly say, the best spin I could put on it? And I was going to say, well, maybe you could say, well, let's say these guys are making tons and tons, you know, millions of bucks. Uh, we don't know how much is going to charity. Maybe they're buying these fancy ass shoes, but maybe at the same time they're giving hundreds of thousands or millions away to charity. You know, uh, that was about the, the best I could come up with. But even then, I take it the lion's share of their money comes from their congregants, their flock. And isn't it kind of a slap in, in the face? If I imagine they're giving you this money so you can continue to preach the gospel, uh, the, the word of God or whatever. And the idea that you're using any of that money to buy these obscenely costly luxury items that these people could probably never afford themselves when, you know, a, a cheap pair of shoes from Foot Locker would probably get the job done just as well, you know what I mean? And then on top of it, it's also gross in a couple of different ways. I mean, even for the sake of argument, they were giving loads of money away to legitimate charities that maybe, you know, help the poor or starving or provide natural disaster relief or whatever the heck it is. Even then, it would still be like, imagine the additional good that could be done with, I don't know, the $4,970 that would have been left over from buying a $30 pair of sneakers instead of a $5,000 pair of sneakers. And I imagine that if they're wasting money in that regard, they're probably wasting money in a lot of other ways too. 
And uh, it just doesn't seem very Christian either. You know, you look at the New Testament and you basically have Jesus kind of preaching a message that, you know, the the end is imminent. You shouldn't really fret or worry about material goods. If anything, you know, you should give them away or, you know, give your cloak to your brother, etc. Um, the focus should be on how you treat your brother, your fellow man, not on material goods. And <sighs> taking money from your congregants and buying $5,000 sneakers, you know, just doesn't seem very, uh, it doesn't seem very uh, Christy. And then there was one last story I wanted to cover. And it's basically a scientific story or a science news story that I just found really fascinating. It's been all over the news, but this article here is specifically from the Siberian Times. Scientists dissect 42,000-year-old extinct male foal preserved in permafrost for cloning bid. And uh, it says exclusive footage of pioneering work by Russian and South Korean scientists finding oldest blood ever discovered from deep in the Ice Age. And then there's a related headline, unique in paleontology, liquid blood found inside a prehistoric 42,000-year-old foal. Scientists confident that they can extract cells to clone 42,000-year-old extinct foal. And it's amazing how well-preserved this little animal was, this baby horse. Uh, yeah, and so at, at first I thought it was kind of funny that they kind of give a graphic content warning. I'm like, it's this desiccated ancient corpse. How bad can it be? But the animal is so well-preserved pre that the dissection actually is kind of gruesome. And uh, its organs and everything are all, you know, still there. Um and it's when they showed my first saw an image of this little baby horse, it's actually a really kind of sympathetic image. Uh, you just see this this poor baby animal cur uh, curled up almost. And I think they said, you know, they had suggested that it probably died from slipping in mud and, and not being able to escape, uh, you know, into like some muddy uh recess uh or something like that and uh yeah i couldn't help but picture you know this poor baby animal just drowning and fighting for its life and eventually just succumbing and getting pulled under you know uh geez that actually that bothers me a lot more than uh notre dame not that we can't you know feel bad about both um and then and i was for Scientifically speaking, I'm very excited about this. I'm someone that, that doesn't have any reservations about cloning or genetic science. I can't wait to see what science is able to bring forth. I don't really have any Frankensteinian uh, f cautionary fears or whatever about any of this stuff. Uh, this stuff real, really excites me, genetic engineering, cloning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As long as it's done responsibly and the life forms, the beings brought about through cloning and genetic engineering are treated well and treated with the same respect uh, a naturally born person or animal would be treated with. I think it's really cool, you know. But they were saying that there were some ethical concerns 
And some of the ethical concerns listed were, okay, for one thing, this creature's natural habitat or environment is no longer going to be in existence. So, uh, you know, there's no more ice age or whatever. So how, how would this animal survive? I think you could probably argue, even though the same frigid climb or whatever it was used to might not be around. It's a mammal. It's a horse, I imagine. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist, so maybe I should keep my mouth shut. But I would imagine that uh, this this prehistoric horse could probably still do pretty well. They, they could probably find an, an acceptable environment for it. You know what I mean? Um, and then another concern was the quality of life of the animal in another way. Uh, this thing most likely would be sub subjected to a life of scientific experimentation. Uh, would this be unnecessarily cruel for the animal? What would its quality of life be? And I guess that's a valid question. And it all depends. If the experimentation is basically scientific observation, maybe some blood tests, things like that, but the animal is still being treated well with kindness and compassion and affection, and it's given plenty of room to run around and play and stuff, you know, then I think that wouldn't be, you know, a bad scenario. But if, if you know, if they plan on dissecting the animal or, you know, constantly prodding it and subjecting it to really invasive, painful procedures, then yeah, maybe it'd be better for, for it to never be uh, brought into existence if that's the case. But if it's treated humanely, like I said, it's just being scientifically observed and maybe the occasional blood test or something like that, then uh, why not? I think it'd be awesome to see this life form from the past brought into the pe present, you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, very exciting. And I think as as long as um as long as it's brought back and treated in an ethically responsible, humane manner, then this would be such a great thing. I I would love to see one of these little prehistoric horses prancing around again. Uh, <laughs> I say little because we're talking about the baby. I don't know how how big an adult one is. But with that uh, being said, I guess I'll call it a wrap. As always, thanks for listening, guys. You know the drill. Please like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you want to help the show out monetarily, because I assure you, I am not wearing Gucci. Uh, even if I was rich, I probably, probably wouldn't wear Gucci. But <laughs> I think I'm to work, I'm wearing a beat-up pair of Skechers uh, hiking boots that that uh, the toes are ripped open. And uh, I'm wearing some kind of no-name brand I brought off uh, bought off of Amazon uh, around the house and to the grocery store. But <laughs> um, if you want to help the show out monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help the show out for as little as 99 cents a month. Or you can use the... Uh, the the PayPal address at the bottom of the PayPal page. Let me try that again. You can use the PayPal address at the bottom of the Podbean page. There's all that alliteration. 
Um, that's probably the worst I've ever uh, mangled that since the inception of the show. Um, all right, brothers and sisters, thanks, and until next week. <laughs>